Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Abby Joe Morris. 911, what's your emergency? And I'm like, I'm really high, man. <laughs> I took some weed. That and more. But first, folks, I can't believe how many incredible stories we've been preparing for our live shows in July. We've got Risk live on stage in New York on July 21st, in Detroit on July 30th, and in Chicago on July 31st. Now, you can always find out where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. And you can also learn about whether or not there's live streams of those shows to buy tickets for as well. So we hope to see you soon because incredible shows in the works with unforgettable stories. Folks, one of my all-time favorite Risk stories is the one called Outside the Comfort Zone by Chris Ryan. It's when he's in the Mayan ruins, he's on acid, he gets bitten by a scorpion. Well, Chris has his own podcast called Tangentially Speaking, and I was on a recent episode of it. Chris has never stopped adventuring. In fact, he just told me he's roaming the plains of the Serengeti as I'm recording this. And Chris knows so many fascinating people that he talks to on Tangentially Speaking. You can hear him in conversation with a bank robber, a sex worker, an Italian prince, philosophers, experts in psychedelics. Chris wrote the absolutely fascinating and groundbreaking New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn, about the whole history of non-monogamy in our species. He talks about that and so much more, maintaining psychological health in a troubled world. At the end of the day, great conversation has no bounds. So go ahead, follow Tangentially Speaking on the Substack iOS app, Chris Ryan, substack.com or wherever you listen to your podcast and tell Chris Kevin sent you. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now here's the show. Well, 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 well. 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Plaid behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Empathy. Three beautiful stories about surprising moments of really being there with someone. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Abby Jo Morris at a Risk Live show in New York. Now, this was Abby Jo's first time telling a true story on stage like this, and I'm already hoping she returns. But before Abby, we have someone I'm so honored. I've been reading and listening to <laughs> this first storyteller for years. Some of our audio editors also, John LaSala especially, are big fans as well. So we're so moved that Daniele Bellelli shares with us on today's show. If you don't know, Daniele is a philosopher and a historian. His books, Create Your Own Religion and Not Afraid, are phenomenal. And his podcast, The Drunken Taoist, and History on Fire are not to be missed. So here he is now, Daniele Bellelli, with a story we call In Her Presence. So this was about 2011, maybe 2012. My wife had recently died from a brain tumor. My daughter was about a year and a half old, uh, two years if it was 2012 by then. Life was not particularly fun, to put it mildly. Not only there was grief involved, but there was also a bunch of other stuff. The house we lived in, we had a mortgage that was predicated on two incomes. That wasn't going to happen anymore. This was back during the loan crisis where everybody was asking for loan modifications. So when I asked the banks, saying, hey, can I get a little help here on the interest rates because uh, things have changed for me, I got back two letters in the same day, one telling me that they couldn't give me a loan modification because I made too much money, so clearly I didn't need it, and the other letter telling me that I... I wouldn't get a loan modification because I was making too little money. So we were going to lose the house. My wife had died. The teaching job that I'd been looking to get on a more permanent basis for the previous 10 years, and I was told I was pretty much a shoo-in for it, it became clear that things had changed and I was never going to get it. So my career is taking a nosedive. My baby needs me 24-7, understandably so. And I'm not in the greatest frame of mind I've ever been. I'm stressed beyond belief. I'm grieving without time to grieve. I'm just not in a good time in my life. So one of the things I badly needed at the time, like I needed it, like I needed oxygen, was to catch a break for a few minutes, an hour. And the only time when that would happen was when my daughter would take a nap. So that was my, not even moment of sanity, because it's not that I could do something for myself at that time. It was just a moment where I could try to catch up on the million things that needed to get done, both work-wise, in every possible way. So this one day, I go put my baby down for a nap, and she's not a 
difficult kid, but she's not an easy kid either. It takes a while to, you know, there's a whole ritual to calm her down, make sure she's down to go to sleep and all of that. So after 10 minutes of working on it, eventually she goes to sleep and I'm like, ah, okay, now I have an hour, I have two hours, go do your thing. I come downstairs, five minutes later, and she's crying, I'm like, shit. Not this again. So I go up and I'm like, okay, 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 let's do it again. We'll do the whole ritual and calming you down and rocking you and this and that. And she falls asleep again. And I'm like, okay, took a little longer than I wanted. I'm a little more stressed than I wanted, but that's fine. At least she's asleep. Come back downstairs, start working. And two minutes later, she starts crying again. And I'm just I almost physically felt something break there in me, where I was like, I'm done. I have nothing left to give. You know, whatever tiny bit of energy I had left has officially hit the wall. I don't know what we're going to do 10 minutes from now, because I have literally nothing left. So I just walk upstairs, go to her. I'm too bummed out to even look her in the eye, not because she did anything wrong, but because I'm feeling just so completely and utterly broken. So I just put a hand on her in the crib, just letting her know that I'm there so that she can come down, but I'm just not even engaging, right? I just have my hand there and just like, oh God, I don't know what we're gonna do now. And she keeps crying for a few more seconds. And then in the middle of a cry, she goes just dead silent. And so I look up because I'm like, is she choking? Is she? That's not normally how it works. You know, there's a little bit of a wean off on the cry and you know that that's when they are coming out of it. This was from full on cry to nothing in 0.1 seconds. So I'm just like, what just happened here? And I look and she's sitting up and she's staring me right in the eye, full on eye contact without moving, completely calm. She grabbed my hand that I put on her back to let her know I'm there, and she's just gently caressing it very slowly, looking me in the eye. And I feel something really weird in that moment. I feel this uh, incredible sense of presence from her. And I don't feel like it's not her or there's something else going on. It's her, clearly. But it's almost her from a different timeline, because she does not feel like a two-year-old baby. She feels incredibly powerful and wise and mature and hard to put into words, but like something else is there. And I get the feeling as she's staring at me and she keeps not breaking eye contact and staying completely calm. I get this feeling that I'm getting this almost non-verbal communication where what I'm receiving is, this sucks, I know it. It feels like hell, I get it. But no, you're not gonna break. No, you're gonna be okay. It's gonna work out, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. And I feel it very clearly. Almost like if somebody was telling me those things, except none of that is happening. Just her looking at me. It lasts for 30, 40 seconds, something like that. And then she just goes back to being a baby and oh la we making noises and stuff. And she's my baby again, the one I know. And I'm like, okay, this is my daughter. And before it's again, not like it felt like she wasn't, but there was something like the perception was you're in the presence of somebody who's not a two-year-old right there. 
Of course, none of this makes any sense from a purely rational standpoint, or I do I even know, because I mean, I've seen in my life stuff that objectively doesn't make sense, where you're like, okay, that was weird in a very clear kind of way. Like, this is a feeling, so it's not, it's much more subjective than that. But it was so insanely powerful, so intense. I felt it so clearly, and it was really, when I think about it, one of the most meaningful experiences of my life, most intense experiences, where I just had this really powerful something that was passed through in that moment. Sixteen, I was outed as queer to my family, and this was before I came out as trans, so I was identifying as a gay male. And predictably, my evangelical pastor parents weren't jazzed about that. Um, you know, there was a lot of hurt, there was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of yelling and tears, and eventually I made the difficult decision to leave my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida, and move in with family two states away in North Carolina. But before this, my parents and I had a really good thing going. You know, they, uh, they wanted to be in my life. They were present. They were always caring. They wanted to sit down to dinner with me and ask me about my day. And my dad especially is just so much fun to hang out with. He's such a freaking weirdo. He's just like has weird nicknames for everybody in his life. And so my brother Austin is Potato Skin Sales executive guy. He's like, Potato. And we know he's talking about Austin. Like, little birdie in the window. We know he's talking about my sister Alex. It's just weird. And he just inspires me with this humor, you know? And so I wanted to retain that connection. I wanted to be able to like still have him in my life. But the way that we were going to rebuild our relationship was not going to be through phone calls because that felt like we were like in the same room alone together, walking on eggshells again. And so the way that we began to rebuild and reachieve normalcy was through in-person visits. And so I would hop on a train in Southern Pines, North Carolina, and it'd rumble through the night and I'd wake up in Jacksonville, Florida. And I went on a trip the summer I turned 20, which is June 2017. So I hopped on a train. Next morning I arrived, and I was arriving the morning before Father's Day, and we were also going to celebrate some birthdays, and I was going to go back to North Carolina. And so I got off the train. There's my dad standing on the platform. He's got this, like, he's got rosacea, so he's got this, like, big red face and big smile and blue sparkly eyes. And I'm so excited to see him. But also my chest just clenches up with anxiety as we're walking to the car because I'm like, oh my God, I'm just expecting some kind of comment about like, so what book of the Bible has been has the Lord been impressing upon your heart lately? Or like, you know, just like something else that segues into like my salvation or my soul or, you know, like just like stuff I don't want to talk about, right? And so we get into the car and he surprises me because he turns on the radio and he's like, do you know this song? And it's Billy Joel, She's Always a Woman to Me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think... I think you showed me this song. He's like, yeah, great song, great song. And he has this like big booming voice. He sung with the, the, the symphony orchestra in our hometown. So he's just like singing along to Billy Joel. And then I'm singing along to Billy Joel. And we're both singing. It's awesome. And before I know it, 
40 minutes have passed by and we're pulling into the driveway of my childhood home and I'm going in to see my dog and my mom and there's been no hitch. You know, we, we have shot the shit. We have joked around. We've sung along to Billy Joel. I think we've done it. We've gotten back to that place of normalcy. And I'm so fucking hype because I didn't know if we would ever get back to this place. And so that's probably why I accept an invitation from some friends that comes into my phone as, I, as I'm getting home. And these friends I go out with, I've never hung out with uh, outside of the context of church youth group. And so we would get into crazy antics like teenagers do, but it was always in like the context of like piety, you know? It was like a road trip to Orlando for a worship conference, you know, or like <laughs> stuff that kids do. So we would, uh, we were suddenly like adults who hadn't seen each other in a couple years, unfettered, unchaperoned, and like outside of the boundaries of evangelicalism. And so we're like sitting at Burger King, and we're like, fuck, shit, bitch, dip, you know, just like, it feels like awesome because we can just like say whatever the hell we want. It's really, really fun. And they're having fun too because after a couple hours, they're like, yo, we don't want this to end. Do you want to come back and smoke up with us? And I think like, oh, fuck yes, because how the hell can I not? Because it's like a seminal landmark in my evangelical deconstruction journey. You know, smoking up with my old church youth group friends. I'm like, absolutely. So we go back to one of their houses, night's fallen, there's Christmas lights strung up in their backyard, and we sit around this this uh, stone fire pit, and we're smoking up. And mind you, I'd only smoked a few times before, so I'm a lightweight so I'm like 20,000 feet cruising altitude, you know, dazed and confused in a good way. And then one of them busts out THC oil and I'm like, HGTV? And they're like, no, THC, it's like concentrated weed. And I'm like, cool, you know, and I'm just like being a dumb kid. I'm like, I want to get fucked up, you know? And so they're like, okay, you want to try some? So they pass it. I smoke up. I'm already high, mind you. And so I'm like, yeah. And then everything stops. I cannot move. I cannot remember my name. I can't remember how I got here. My friends' voices are just like, you know, just in my periphery. I'm like in the sunken place and get out. In fact, when I saw Get Out in the theater, I almost had a panic attack because it reminded me. I was like, ah! And so I'm freaking out, and I'm just like screaming, but my body's not moving. And the place that my mind goes to is hell. Because, like, growing up as a Jesus freak, like, we talked about hell, right? Like, you know, ha, ha, ha. but it was it was always fire, brimstone. It was always a place of eternal punishment, and this struck me as worse than physical punishment because it was psychological. And I thought, I've done it. I kicked the bucket, and I didn't make it to the good place. My parents, <laughs> my parents were fucking right, and I'm in hell. And so, approximately two million years of psychological torment passed, probably more like two minutes, and I regained my locomotion, and I like stand bolt upright and the lawn chair behind me falls back and my friends are like, oh, he's so fucked up. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I'm like, I'm going to go inside. And they're so fucked up that they're like, okay. And so I just like walk inside and as I'm going through the glass lighting doors, the like cool night air touches my cheek and it like grounds me. Like that sense of movement and like the air, it makes me feel like "Mm, I'm not in hell. And 
so I'm like, gotta keep moving. <laughs> so I just like keep moving. I go to the front door and there's this pile of shoes by the front door where people come in and they, you know, they kick off their shoes. But since it had been raining earlier in the night and the grass was dewy in the backyard, I kept my flip-flops on. But something my weed-addled brain was like, mm, this is where you take off your shoes, honey. <laughs> and so I just like took off my flip-flops, opened the front door, and then walked out. And the next thing I know, the soles of my feet are stinging from walking on wet pavement for like God knows how long. I don't know how long I've been walking. I don't know where I am in orientation to my friend's house because I'm in the suburbs where my childhood home is and where my friends are. And so every single house is just like a cookie cutter tract home, which lends itself more to the notion that like, I don't know, like I'm in like a matrix-like simulation created by mm, the devil. And so I'm once again like, I'm in hell. Yeah, yeah. And so... This, this notion is only heightened when I get to an intersection and I hallucinate that when I turn around, every single street ends in a cul-de-sac, a dead end. Like I'm in like a, a clover, almost like, I don't know, I'm in hell. And so my anxiety is reaching a zenith and I am like palpitating and I do the only thing I can think of. It's hard to describe, but like in that state, it feels like the only thing I can do. And so I reach into my gym shorts I pull out my phone and I dial the only number I can remember, which is 911. And they're like, 911, what's your emergency? And I'm like, I'm really high, man. I took some weed. Know where I am. And they're like, okay, do you need to be picked up? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and so the ambulance comes and the cute little paramedics with big biceps come out and they like strap me to a gurney and I'm just like rattling around in this like ambulance spot, you know, just the wee 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 down the highway towards the nearest hospital. And I'm like starting to vomit. I feel like I have like electricity in my bones. And so I'm just like gesticulating. I'm like convulsing. The EMTs are laughing at me, which like puts to a stop real quick because I am vomiting. And they're like, 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 literally, you see blood every day, so maybe get over it. But anyway, we get to the hospital. They get me into the ER, and somehow I surmise later on that I've been able to communicate my my parents' like phone number or like unlock my phone for somebody. Because as I'm convulsing on this gurney, covered in vomit, and like I have cotton mouth too, so I'm like water, and the nurse is like, sorry. You have fluids. <laughs> Sucks to be you. Um, I see my dad's panic-stricken expression appear in the doorway of this ER room, along with none other than little birdie in the window, my sister Alex. Shout out. And I see them as I'm like, <laughs> you know, as soon as I see them, I realize a couple things. One, I'm not in hell. Because if I were in hell... Satan would be, like, way more clever than sending my, like, angry-ass father to me because I feel like that's, like, low-hanging fruit in, like, the realm of torture. (laughs) You know, that's easy. (laughs) And the other thing I realized is, like, based on how long I've been out and, like, when I left my house, it's past midnight, which means that it's Sunday, which means that my dad's preaching a sermon in a few hours, and also it's Father's Day. And so... I say the only thing I can think of as I'm, like, (laughs) covered in vomit, convulsing on this gurney. I'm like, I know this is a really shitty Father's Day gift. (laughs) And he's, like, just, like, staring at me. And then I just, like, collapse. All the fights left me. I burned so much energy. And I'm starting to pass out. And as I'm passing out, I'm just saying, Dad, Dad, I'm, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry. And I'm just repeating that. And right before I lose consciousness, I just hear him go, yeah. I pass out into like the most fathomless sleep you can imagine. And so deep that I wake up from it very slowly. Like I'm like walking out of the ocean back onto the shore. So I can hear things before my breathing's even changed, before I've moved a muscle. And I hear my dad sitting on my left, talking to my sister on the right. And he's saying, you know, the worst thing is that in the morning before we leave for church, I'm going to have to tell him, he's talking about me, I'm going to have to tell him, you can't be here when we come back. And I think, shit, because I knew this was coming, right? Like, I can't really blame him. Like, this is kind of like the shittiest first night of a visit ever. But at the same time, it hurts like a bitch because staying at my childhood home during these visits is like the one last vestige of my pre-coming out life, right? It's, It's the one common ground my parents and I still share. And that's being ripped away. But also, like, I kind of did it. And so just, I feel fucking awful. And so I wait a few minutes and then I flutter my eyelids open so they know I'm awake. And my dad says, Aaron, that's my given name. He's like, Aaron, you're going down a dark path. And I'm like, okay. Uh, I don't know how to respond to that. And then he's like, Aaron. I'm like, yes, sir. And he's like, what did you learn tonight? I think for a minute. And I'm like... Hugs, not drugs. <laughs> and he laughs. And it feels so good to hear that big, booming chest chuckle. But at the same time, I ache knowing that this, like, this might be the last time I ever make him laugh, right? Like, this might be it. This is, like, maybe the end of the line. And so they load me up into the car. We go home. I collapse in my hospital gown and yellow canary socks and... Then the next morning, I call a friend. I'm like, hey, can I come stay with you? And she's like, yeah, sure. So I go and stay with her. And I think that's it, right? Two years later, I find myself in a car with my dad going to a family reunion. And I finally muster the chutzpah to to say, like, hey, dad, about that night, like, I'm sorry I put you through that. Like, that can't have been easy. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, it it was difficult. It was scary. It was scary to see you like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And in that moment, as we're talking about it, I recall that that night, I thought it was the end of the line for our relationship. You know, like, how can you be a bigger disappointment to your evangelical pastor father? You're like already a sodomite. And then you're like, I don't know, you probably also think I'm like a junkie now or like, you know, whatever. Like, I don't know what he thinks, you know? And so... I thought that was it, but we were talking. Two years had passed and we were still talking. And there was a sense of security in that, a sense of insurance that even though I'd fallen as far as you can down like the rungs of like child expectations, that he was still talking to me. And I know that's a really shitty low bar to be like, oh cool, you didn't like excommunicate your child, gold star, you know? But (laughs) fuck, I want my dad in my life. I want him in my life so fucking badly. I want to be able to make him laugh like that all the time. And I want to be able to learn how he makes people laugh like that all the time. And so as convoluted and strange and certainly strained as our relationship might be, I've realized that at least 
I'm not about to lose it entirely. Thank you. like a seminal landmark in my evangelical deconstruction journey. Smoking up with my old church youth group friends. The place that my mind goes to is Fire, brimstone, terrible punishment. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
This is Risk. This is Drug Song by Yanko Nilovich behind me now. And we just heard from Abby Joe Morris, who you can find at Instagram at abby.joe.mo. And before that, a little interstitial about Burning in Hell by our editor, Hope Brush. Well, I'll tell you, you're not going to want to miss the... Patreon, the bonus that we have over at patreon.com slash risk this week. If you heard that utterly beautiful and excruciating story about racism that Maya James, we re-ran it a couple weeks back for Juneteenth, you might have been amazed to learn that Maya was only 17 when she recorded that story for us. And one of our audio editors, Taj Easton, was so moved by that story that I asked Maya if the three of us could listen back to it and share how it makes us feel now, you know, about six or so years later. I didn't have a place to be weird besides the Risk podcast. And when I listened to the podcast, you know, hearing stories about being black in white areas, hear stories about being jumped, like those conversations were so important for me to hear. And if I didn't hear them, I would have felt like I had to stay insecure and I had to stay this sheltered biracial girl from Northern Michigan. And when I accessed a broader community, it gave me the language and the toolbox that I needed to connect with people who I identify with. I'll tell you, I came away from that conversation thinking it might be fun to have Maya co-host an episode of the podcast with me sometime. You know, we've been thinking how much we love having people other than me host some of our live shows like David Crabb hosting the live shows in L.A. He does such an amazing job out there. And so we're curious about playing with other folks appearing in the hosting, maybe even on the podcast in the near future. In any case, you can find that conversation and so much more at patreon.com slash risk by becoming a member and helping to keep the show running because we really need it. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Let's hear one last story on today's episode. I would introduce our next storyteller, but at this point in the episode, I'm guessing (laughs) he needs no introduction. time frame is more or less the same. This must be 2012, probably. My house is getting repossessed right under my feet. My wife is still dead, I'm still going through grief and insanity of all kinds. I'm still struggling with my career, you know, all sort of crap is still happening. And I'm basically spending 24-7 with minimal sleep just trying to figure out tending to my daughter's needs. Because, you know, it's like it's hard enough to be a kid. It's hard enough to be a tiny kid who's 
just lost her mom. And I'm, you know, working mostly in spare time or when I can catch somebody to watch her for half a day and I can go teach classes and do stuff like that. But I'm just literally, if I'm not in a classroom teaching, I'm tending to her and there's nothing else. I wrote a book at that time because I had to, because I needed the money and I had a contract and I'm literally writing it as I'm feeding her, I'm giving her her milk, I'm like, with the other hand, I'm typing away and trying to figure out what's the next sentence because I had no time whatsoever. So it's in this context that some sweet people have been very helpful. There were friends who either sent me money or did things to help us pay bills, do the basics to keep the boat afloat. One time a friend sent me some money and he said, look, this time I want you to do something purely for yourself because, you know, I can send you a little bit of money and it can help you with another bill. But the reality is that right now, you know, you're right at the edge where you're paying your bills and stay on top of it. A few hundred bucks, more or less, is not really going to change that in any meaningful way. But I want you to do something for yourself. And I found it almost insulted. I'm like, for myself in this context, really? This is what you say? I mean, I appreciate the gesture, you're sweet, but what the hell are you even talking about? There is no for myself. It doesn't exist. I don't know if it will exist. Definitely not in the near future. He's insistent and I'm like, there's nothing I want to do for myself other than get some sleep, you know, that's just about it. I was reading at the time the biography of one of my absolute idols, E.Q. Sojun, was a Zen monk from the late 1300s into the 1400s. was just a delightful human being. He was this famous Zen master, but at the same time, his main passions were uh, women, drinking, and generally having a fantastic time, despite the fact that he lived in a crazy context of civil war, plague, all sorts of terrible things he still found a way to be happy in the middle of all of it and not to be the self-righteous guy separating the sacred and the profane and talking about spirituality as this deep thing as opposed to the profane world of you guys who are out drinking. Or To him, as long as his life lives with awareness and a certain level of decency, you are do what you want, you know. And I like that. I like the idea of somebody who could who could enjoy life in spite of it all. It definitely made me feel a little better at the time when life did not feel particularly good. He had a fantastic line, which is one of my favorite lines in all of literature that says, throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it. How good is that? That's just such a beautiful line and it seemed applicable. So one thing led to another and one thing that i read about him is that he was an enthusiastic supporter of sex workers in japan at the time and that piqued my curiosity because i was like hmm that's interesting because on one hand you know so much stigma around sex work and in some cases for good reasons we have all heard horrendous stories of human trafficking of terrible conditions and, and that stuff is real you know it's not like it's made up but it's not all there is to it. There are other approaches. And so I was like, you know, like, what am I going to do for myself? Nothing. You know, realistically, the only thing that I would remind me that life feels good on some level would be wild, intense passion with some beautiful woman. But that's not going to happen because, A, I'm not going to get into a relationship. I'm emotionally wrecked and there's no way I can get into a relationship. 
I don't really like one night stands because people say they are not attached and it begins and dance that night and half of the time it's a little more complicated than that and the last thing I want is to mess with anybody's emotions or feelings so the idea of just getting into it with a lady where the limits of the interactions are very clear you know we can still be super nice to each other but it's there's a very clear reason why I'm there. There's a very clear reason why she's there and it ends. I was like, huh, I wonder what that is like. You know, I never really had, uh, I was always a bit heavily on the romantic side of thing. I never really separated sex from love. I was like, hmm, what would it be like? So I started looking into it. And then I decide, I'm in a period of my life where, like, what do I have to lose about anything, really? I'm just, I tend to say yes to everything because I'm in that type of frame of mind where I, like, consequences don't even feel real at that point. So I'm like, ah, what the hell? I'm just going to pull the trigger and find out. By the time I get under the lady's apartment and I'm a little bit early, I'm thinking about, okay, a little bit, I'm going to go upstairs, all of that. I'm freaking out. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? This is not me. This is stupid. This is, I almost feel sick to my stomach. I'm just like, oh. but I'm like, okay, I'm already here. Might as well just go for it. And this lady opened the door and she's insanely sweet. Super, super nice to me in a very warm kind of way. And granted, I get it. That's her job. That's what she's, you know, I'm sure overwhelmingly is an act, you know, that's what you need to be like. But at the same time, it feels really just like we're sitting there and there's just this very pleasant, nice interaction among us. It feels kind, despite the fact that, you know, you're all the sordid story about sex work. That's not what it was. You know, I like the fact that she was independent and she made all her money. She didn't have anybody handling business for her or anything like that. So I felt safer about, okay, this is not a weird human trafficking kind of thing. So I felt good in that sense. And she seemed really cool, really pleasant, really nice. So by the time it's all uh, done and over with, I'm sort of looking at myself from the outside and I'm there laying naked with this beautiful woman in my arms and we are just sweetly chit-chatting and at one point she starts asking me things about my life and I'm like well if you really want to know I'll tell you and you know it gets heavy quickly because that's where my life is at at that point and and she goes like okay don't pay me you need it more than I do definitely don't give me money and I'm like no 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 wait stop let's be real here it's your job it's you need no of course I'm gonna pay you she's like no 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 I make more money than you do at this point I'm doing fine I don't really need it that bad we're good so we start the funniest argument in the history of sex work because I'm very insistent on wanting to pay her for her time and energy and she's very insistent on not that was pretty much the exact opposite of every stereotype you could associate with sex work, where everything is about the last dime and everybody's through trying to screw each other over for every little cent. And not like that at all. It's insanely kind interaction between human beings who never met each other. They're probably not going to meet each other again. And they are just being 
decent and nice to one another for no good reason other than the fact that it feels good to be decent and nice to other human beings. Finding that degree of sweetness, of kindness, in a context that's not famous for that, really made me feel good about life. It wasn't just about hot woman, sex, kind of stuff. That was almost the excuse. But what really happened that was meaningful was something else on a whole other level. I'm eternally thankful for that. It just was a very beautiful moment at a time when the really beauty didn't even exist in my life. is all for this episode folks this is the one and only kate bush behind me now we just heard a second story there from the one and only daniele bellelli i was just thinking it would be cool to have one of those long form conversations with daniele like we put on our patreon with maya james this week don't forget to check out daniele's podcast the drunken taoist and history on fire his books not afraid and create your own religion and his website at daniellebelelli.com folks if you don't know i do one-on-one training with people for storytelling whether you've got a memoir or a solo show or you want to prep something for a show like risk or prep for a job interview or a wedding toast a eulogy i've helped tour guides prep their material and preachers and trial lawyers all kinds of possibilities and you can find me at kevinallison.com other than that everything you might want to know about risk you can find at risk-show.com folks today's the day take a risk 